Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Domestication is what helps humans advance from hunter-gatherers into the civilizations we have today. When we think about domestication, we often think about animals and farms. But on farms, there's another important thing that we've domesticated as humans, and that's crops. And the domestication of our crops is what has enabled us to build, thrive, and survive in cities across the world in a variety of climates. And we find out about the history of those crops domestication. Now, one of the ways to study seeds and crops is to look at, obviously, the genetics and sequence those genes. But if you want to look at the structure of some of these seeds going all the way back in time, well, you need a very, very powerful visioning system. And that's where synchrotrons can play a huge role in helping study and analyse things, especially seeds and other objects from the past. And researchers using the Diamond Light Source, which is the UK's national synchrotron and science facility at the Harwell Science and Innovation Campus in Oxfordshire, helped study and analyse seeds from over 2,000 years ago, and by doing that, help identify what made them so unique and hardy, which is going a great way to show us more about the development and genetic engineering that went into shaping our crops that we take for granted today. This research was undertaken and led by Charlene Murphy and Dorian Fuller, and was published in the journal Scientific Reports in 2017. And what these researchers were trying to understand is how these seeds evolved and changed over time. And one of the major markers that they were looking at for crop domestication was the seed coat thinning. So on the outside of the seed, there's a protective coating or layer. And by seeing how this adjusts and changes over time, they could track the progress of domestication of crops. Fortunately, we have several samples of these from And they looked at seeds from between 2000 BC and 1200 BC in the legume horse grant, which has the scientific name of Macatiloma uniflorum, which is basically a bean commonly eaten in South India. So by taking this bean, this legume horse grant, and putting it into a very, very high resolution X-ray tomography, which basically uses the synchrotron diamonds L13-2 beam line, by using the beam line to produce high-frequency X-rays, they're able to expose these seeds to these very, very detailed X-rays and get some stunning analysis and images of what these seeds were like over time. Of course, while leaving the seed intact. Now, they were interested in seed coat thickness because it's pretty much a key marker of domestication. The thinner the coats and the protective layers means the faster the germination of the seed time. So how quickly that seed develops into a plant and a crop. But the problem is, if you want to analyse seed coat and study it in detail, normally you have to break the seed. And that's just not an option when we're talking about archaeological specimens because they're so rare and so valuable, we can't just crack them open to see what's going on inside them. And that's where studying stuff with the synchrotron becomes so useful because you can do some really, really detailed X-ray images without having to damage the thing. So by being able to look at the seed coat thickness without breaking the sample is pretty much impossible any other way. Now, what was even fascinating, though, is that now that they have detailed X-ray images of the seeds, they could see that their previous estimates were very, very wrong. They could have been misleading. Of the 12 samples analysed, 
that you could sort of pick the seeds into two groups. Thicker wild seeds with average thickness of about 17 micrometers and about thinner ones which had a seed coat layer of about 10 to 15 micrometers. And what that means is that the domestication they were able to identify took place during the second millennium BCE with seed coats were pretty much fixed in small thickness by early centuries AD. And that means that they can use the same techniques now, not just for these legume beans, but also grains, pulses, and peas. So it just goes to show very complicated pieces of equipment like the synchrotron can help out not just in current modern day science, but also archeological science, understanding how we got to the position we are in today and what genetic engineering was undertaken in the past two, three thousand years ago to help generate the staple crops that we rely on across the world today. So this is some great research being done at the Diamond Light Source in the UK. If you're like me, you love bread, and I could eat, well, pretty much as much bread as it's possible to eat. And bread, and in particular wheat, is one of the miracles of modern civilization. We can pretty much start the clock of civilization in the Western setting at the development of wheat and farming techniques. And it might seem like such a simple and basic thing, but we've been undertaking very, very successful genetic modification of wheat for over 10,000 years. And that seems a bit strange to think about because when we think about genetic modification, we go, well, that's something new that we've only really started doing recently with the big bad GM food crops and so on and so on. But we've been modifying genetically wheat pretty much since the Neolithic times. When we meant from uh, the transition between more scavenging and hunter-gathering type food to having a standard, staple, agrarian-based society where we were cultivating crops and farming those crops. And when we did that, we took a naturally growing grass, wheat, and we selectively bred that wheat. We cultivated that wheat, we helped pick the plants that were more useful, and we got rid of the ones that were less useful. And over time, that selective breeding approach developed hardy and staple crops of many, many different types of wheat. But really, that process began about 10,000 years ago in a region of the world we call the Fertile Crescent, which is the region from Lower Egypt around the Nile all the way through Palestine, Israel, Syria, and Assyria, all the way down the Jordan River to the Persian Gulf. And that Mesopotamia region we call the Fertile Crescent. And that's when some of the earliest civilizations started cultivating wheat. And that is really, really fascinating. Because the cultivation of wheat led to the development of the wheel, agriculture, riding, glass, and standard irrigation. And large cities too, which started to build up. And they could survive with these large populations because they were able to grow this crop and grow it so successfully. That's been one of the truly interesting developments in human civilization. And look, okay, the Fertile Crescent is very, very important for the development of a lot of 
Western civilizations and Mediterranean and Middle East civilizations. Other regions used different crops. In Asia, they had rice and other things to farm. In other regions as well, they didn't develop that kind of farming practices based on wheat crops, but they did similar things with animal livestock. For example, in Australia, the indigenous peoples built some incredibly intricate fish traps to basically farm fish 50,000 years ago. So different cultures had their own methods. But we're focusing on wheat here because that's a staple crop of a particular region. So to further analyse just how far we've come and understand exactly what kind of wheat we sort of ended up with, a very, very large study was recently performed and published in the American Association for the Advancement of Science journal, Science led by Rez Avni. And basically, they sequenced all kinds of wheat, heaps and heaps of different samples of wheat over time to basically build a really, really intricate genetic model to study the trends and changes in wheat over this long period. And basically, it helps us understand what we see now in modern wheat, these key traits, and how we use this variety to develop different types of wheat that we could use for everything from making bread to pasta. And how we could take this what was done in the past and use that to help improve our own understanding of wheat and make its yield now in our current crops even better. So wild wheat was a standard wild crop but we domesticated it which caused a shift in several traits mostly which related to seed dormancy and spike morphology along with grain development. So while the spikes of wild wheat shatter at maturity domesticated wheats remain intact and that's quite important because it means they're easier to harvest and when we use techniques which is what Rez Avni and his colleagues did using 3D genetic sequencing data they were able to construct all the way back in time the original chromosomes of wild tetraploid wheat which was a starting point and then we compared over time the genes responsible for shattering and domesticated wheat to the corresponding genes in wild wheat to understand what other changes we'd actually in introduced. And so one of the key things that was bred out of the wheat was this shattering trait. And that domesticated it, made it much more hardy for when we harvested it, and thus greatly improved its yield from the crop. And that was basically an example of how we reverse engineered what we did in the past to understand in detail the great genetic engineering we undertook without even necessarily directly realising what genes we were selecting 10,000 years ago. In previous studies from 2014, researchers from the University of Sheffield, led by Dr. Catherine Priest, also looked into the domestication of wheat. And what they did was look at, well, why were wheat and barley selected as opposed to all the other wild grasses that were around at the time? So they grew a whole variety of these different wild wheats, wild barleys, wild other grasses, and compared them, and saw which ones were better than others. Now, they expected the wild wheat and barley to have some great boost, something that made them more easy to farm or more useful, which is why our ancestors selected them. But that wasn't the case. They grew just as well as the wild grasses, which is really, really strange, because we know that we ended up with wheat and barley as staple crops, so why were they chosen? One of the key characteristics they were able to identify, though, was that, well, when you grow the wheat and barley in high density, like in a farm, rather than in just a wild setting, the wheat and barley survived much better, whereas the grasses, they, they tended not to cope with the high-density packing. So that's probably one of the reasons why we genetically selected, or picked at least, those crops. 
Another thing they investigated was what were the differences between the wild and the current crop generations. Mostly we can see nowadays we have bigger seeds, which mean bigger seedlings. And those bigger seedlings are able to get a bigger share of light and nutrients. It also means as an adult plant, they're less bushy than other grasses, which is pretty useful. And it's one of the reasons we bred them to have those selective traits. But also, wheat and barley still generally had larger seeds than their wild counter- wild grass counterparts, which is again another reason why they were probably selected and bred thus into our staple crops. So next time you eat some bread or some cereal, just take a moment to consider the large amount of genetic engineering that's been undertaken over millennia to get to that point. Because our ancestors across the world have been doing some fantastic work in farming and scientifically engineering those crops for you to enjoy your meal today. And just as we did in the past, we need to make sure we keep finding new ways to help improve our crops so we can feed people for the next thousand years. This is some great work being done and published at the University of Sheffield and also in the American Association for the Advancement of Science Journal Science. for developmentally for children and it's estimated that around 670,000 children under five die annually from vitamin A deficiency and furthermore to that around 250 to 500,000 children in developing countries each year become blind owing to a deficiency in vitamin A particularly in Southeast Asia and Africa these numbers put forward by research by UNICEF into children's health And it's one of the major targets for the Millennium Health Development Goals to target the levels of vitamin A deficiency and find ways to improve it. And given that it's such a problem, there has to be a way in regions such as Southeast Asia and Africa to help improve vitamin A levels. Widespread supplement programs are difficult and expensive, but they may not have the reach of other methods to help improve the health outcomes for these kids. However, if you think about the precursors for vitamin A, beta-carotene, and beta-carotene, by the way, is a bright orange in colour. It's one of the reasons why sweet potatoes and carrots have that bright colour. We can actually take that beta-carotene. We, we put it into other things such as uh, what, soft drinks, yogurts, and other food. We know it as the food colouring agent E160. And the problem is that this E160, this beta-carotene, is not present in many other foods. But if we could find a way to make it present in the staple diets of people most at risk of vitamin A deficiency, then we have a great way of helping those who would suffer from vitamin A deficiency get access to this vitamin in a simple way that they're or- with their food that they're already receiving. So you're solving two problems at once, malnutrition and malnourishment. Now, rice, for example, is one of the most important and basic staple crops across the world. And particularly in Asia, it's responsible for feeding billions of people. But the problem is, it has no beta-carotene in its kernel of rice. There are carotenoids left over in the rice plant, but the long, fat-soluble pigments used by the plant instead of uh, being left over there for being consumption. So researchers 
from the University of Freiburg have been trying to investigate ways to actually bring these beta-carotenoids into the rice kernel. And if you could generate a nice, hardy, stable rice breed that you could spread across those regions that was producing vitamin A as part of the rice, just general growth pattern, then you would actually end up with not only a crop that is beneficial for the inhabitants, but also one that's helping boost the vitamin A levels and prevent blind childhood blindness. Now, one of the major problems is that Given the way in which rice works, and the fact that it has no beta-carotenates in it, it's actually quite difficult to just sort of inject this whole thing into the rice as part of its natural cycle. And one of the big challenges is that the precursors the of beta-carotenates, such as phytoin, can be found in rice, but trying to find a way to grow that and prevent it from being killed as part of the photosynthesis process is quite difficult. So researchers have been trying to study this and its interactions with the enzymes present in rice and also any pesticides that might kill off and prevent it from growing or converting is quite difficult. But the researchers from the University of Freiburg have been able to now successfully image and isolate some of these crystals in the structures of the rice to actually find how they can keep that phytonin and what could be done in the future potentially to help convert that into beta-carotenate. Now, we're a long way from getting rice that's embedded with vitamin A in it, but we're slowly chipping away at understanding the mechanisms that's stopping that from happening. And sooner we get more insight into these enzymes and the way that they interact with each other, we can develop a production of beta-carotenate that in rice that will be stable and won't be killed off by any pesticides or part of the rice photosynthetic conversion process. So before we can turn rice into a super, super crop that has lots of vitamin A packed inside it, we need to do more work. But we are one step closer on the path to that dream. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From using synchrotrons to understand the history of crop development, plus way wild wheat was transformed by humans into its modern counterpart, we also find out about the quest to put vitamin A into rice. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.